Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. In this episode, I am delighted to weave a tale for you about Elizabeth Taylor and her influence and impact on our man Dominic Dunn. They know each other from the Hollywood days and have a long history together. Elizabeth Taylor will be portrayed in Dunn's fiction work in a character named Faye Converse, most notably in An Inconvenient Woman and Another City Not My Own. Elizabeth Taylor is a legend, y'all. And there is a whole other narrative about the time that she and Nick spin together. Much of this occurs in Dominic Dunn's last produced film, Ash Wednesday, which stars Elizabeth Taylor. Today, we're going to talk about that film, their enduring friendship, how Dominic Dunn gets ousted from Hollywood because of that film, and the legend that Elizabeth Taylor is. Let's investigate. Let's back up the timeline just a little bit and remember that Dominic and Lenny separate in the late 1960s. Their divorce is done by 1969, and Dominic Dunn will have a number of years to descend into the depths of his addiction in Hollywood before he takes off for that Oregon hideaway recovery cabin in 1978. There's almost a decade that he has, filled with some successes and a lot of failures. He's awkward with his kids. He's having fallouts with his family. He is struggling with his own sexuality and a looming drug and alcohol addiction that is deepening by the day. Nick knows he's going downhill, and he will talk much later in his career about how he writes assholes so well. He says it's because he was one. He was a climber. He was a master, self-described at acquiring people. People liked him, and he liked people especially if you were rich or famous. He says he was always putting up a front, covering all of his insecurities about the failure of his marriage and manifesting that into a lot of drugs and a lot of seedy adventures. He would come home alone and drink late into the night. He's not only drinking during this time, he is also producing. During this time in the 1970s, Dominic will produce three films. The first, Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band. This is groundbreaking for the time. It's a story of gay men, the whole cast. There's never been anything like this before. The second of those films is The Panic in Needle Park. This is about heroin addiction. This is co-produced with his brother, John Gregory Dunn, and his wife, Joan Didion. Groundbreaking for its time as well. But both of these are stories for a different day. Today, I want to present to you two different tales for you to make your own determination about maybe how much of a jerk Dominic might have been. I think they contrast nicely here. The first pertains to Elizabeth Taylor, and this event occurs on the last film Dominic Dunn will produce in Hollywood called Ash Wednesday. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, and she will tell him during the filming of this movie Nick, this is the last thing you'll ever do in Hollywood. How does she know? Let's talk about it. Ash Wednesday, filmed overseas. Dominic is pretty out of control with his drinking, and he's drinking even more because he's very nervous about producing the legendary Elizabeth Taylor. And he will say he did a stupid thing. 
There's an agent in Hollywood. Her name is Sue Mangers. She is Barbara Streisand's agent. She is a great friend of Bob Evans. She, at the time, is considered the most powerful woman in Hollywood. She's very funny, and she's a little heavier than the Hollywood type. The screenwriter of Ash Wednesday is a man named Jean-Claude Tremont. He is Sue Manger's fiancé. Dominic Dunn meets Jean-Claude, and it turns out Dominic had known him 20 years earlier by a different name. Because this guy that he's meeting again, who's calling himself Jean-Claude Tremont, Dominic knows as Jack Schwartz. And he was a page boy outside of Studio 8H at NBC in New York City back in the day. Jean-Claude says nothing. Dominic says nothing. Sue never picks it up that they know each other. Off from the set, Sue and Jean-Claude go. And a few nights later, Dominic, drunk, at dinner, telling cast and crew. Oh, he says something terrible, y'all. He says, if the history of this movie is ever written, it should be called When a Fat Girl Falls in Love. Might have been funny then. It was not funny two weeks later when this incident is written up in The Hollywood Reporter. Dominic will get a call from his friend Bob Evans, as well as Sue Manger's friend Bob Evans. Bob Evans says, you're through, you're over. And sure enough, he was. Now, Bob Evans will be asked about this. He says he doesn't really remember that part, but let's talk about two sides to every story. Because here's the other story I want to contrast it with. There is a particular incident about this time where Dominic has gone to Mexico. He's having a nice little vacation, staying with his great friend, Merle Oberon. Coming home from Acapulco, Dominic decides it's probably fine to carry some marijuana back with me. A little bit of grass. And in the airport, he is stopped and a guard says, will you follow me? And are you carrying? And sure enough, Dominic's luggage is searched and marijuana is found. He is detained. He is charged. And the most remarkable thing happens. He gets a call from a guy named Belden Cattleman, who is kind of a gangster. Dominic knows him, but Belden calls and asks Dominic, when is your hearing? Who is your judge? And Dominic is waiting for the fallout of his arrest. Like he knows he's done in Hollywood. He's been arrested. This is terrible. But for some reason, his arrest, his detainment, his court, all of that stuff, it never hits the papers. Never mentioned. He goes to court and the procedure in court never mentions his name, just the file number of the case, and would the attorneys please come up to talk to the judge? Sure enough, Nick's lawyer goes up to talk to the judge and comes back, and the lawyer asks Dominic, who do you know? I've never seen anything like this. The entire thing has been removed from the record of the court. He gets a light sentence, record expunged, Months pass, and Dominic is at a wedding at Tony Curtis's house, and he sees Belden Cattleman, and he goes to Belden and says, that was incredible, but why on earth did you help? I mean, I assume it's you that helped me. Why, why would you do that? And Belden tells Dominic, when I first came to this town, no one talked to me, but you always did. You talked to me at every party, 
I think that's a good lesson, friends. Be nice to people. It's a good rule. Two opposing sides there about Dominic. I'll let you make your own determination. This period is a dangerous period for him. He thinks really badly about himself. He's always so low and down on himself. He is with strangers doing drugs. Uh, He's in someone's closet using Turnbull and Asher ties and shooting cocaine. And one of the people in that room dies during this event. He overdoses and Dominic Dunn runs. Like it is destruction on the grandest scale. Bob Evans called it out. He's over in Hollywood. Sure enough, Dominic was off in 1978 to Oregon. Now we're going to flip the script a little bit and talk about the article, The Red Queen, published in December 1985 in Vanity Fair about Elizabeth Taylor. See, Dominic and Elizabeth are still friends. They're going to remain friends after this. Elizabeth Taylor, famously loyal to the people that she considers her friends and in her heart. She never ditches Dominic. And Dominic will have a resurrection of sorts and a redemption in Hollywood when he comes back in the 1990s covering the O.J. Simpson trial. During that time, Dominic will attend Elizabeth Taylor, and I say attend on purpose in very much the same way that we're going to hear about it this time. Again, this is December 1985, and many of the trials that Nick will cover have not even had the true crime thought of yet to get to the trial. But Dunn has been writing now for Vanity Fair about a year and a half. And during this time, he is doing a number of profiles on famous women. You can find many of these collected in his Fatal Charms and Mansions of Limbo. But they are revealing and respectful portraits that Dominic writes with all of these legends. And one of the most impressive to me is the Red Queen article about Elizabeth Taylor. And whoa, is Elizabeth Taylor ever a queen? The thing that gets me in this article, I love how respectful and understanding Dominic is of his subject here. This kind of article with the events that surround it in its conversation, this kind of article would not be written today, I dare say. Certainly not like this. But there is also no star today quite like Elizabeth Taylor. This is also the article that lets us know that Elizabeth Taylor is never, ever called Liz and does reveal this juicy little bit, which happens during the filming of Ash Wednesday. Late, late one night during an all stops out conversation, Dominic writes, Elizabeth said to me, you know, I can't remember when I wasn't famous. It was a statement made without the slightest braggadocio simply as a fact of her celebrated life, except for that other Elizabeth, the Queen of England, who else, then or now, could make it? Again, there's no one like Elizabeth Taylor. Let me take a moment to catch you up on her love life at this point. December 1985, at the time of this writing, Dominic will write, She has had seven marriages and six husbands, four of whom are dead. Hotel heir Nikki Hilton, actor Michael Wilding, showman Mike Todd, and superstar Richard Burton. Her other husbands were singer Eddie Fisher and Senator John Warner of Virginia. She's had four children and five grandchildren. By Michael Wilding, she had two sons, Michael and actor, who is married to Brooke Palance, daughter of Jack, with two children by his previous marriage, and Christopher, an artist married to Eileen Getty, the daughter of Paul Getty Jr., by whom he has two children. 
Her daughter Liza, a sculptress married to Hap Tyvee, was born shortly before her father, Mike Todd, died in a plane crash. Her other daughter, German-born Maria, was adopted by Elizabeth and Richard Burton. She is married to Agent Steve Carson and has one daughter. So friends, this is pre-Elizabeth's eighth husband, Larry Fortinsky. The ninth marriage for her with Larry will occur in 1991. So when we talk about the respectfulness and the tone and how well they know each other, because it's just so good, Dominic opens this article, writing, In September of this year, I went to the London home of Elizabeth's film producer friend, Norma Heyman, where Elizabeth was staying to take her to the photo session for this article. The photographer, Helmut Newton, was there, along with the dozen or so necessary people who arrange her hair and make up her face and provide her clothes, and carry her jewels. We waited four hours for her to get ready, drinking pots of coffee, passing the Sunday papers back and forth across the kitchen table. Elizabeth is chronically late, Richard Burton once said about her. Her lateness is as much a part of her as her violet eyes. Bulletins from above were sent down from time to time. She had slept on her left side and her left eye was puffed up. Were there cucumbers in the house? Were there tea bags? She had not liked at all the Yves Saint Laurent dresses sent over from Paris. She had called in the Emmanuels. More than once, Helmut Newton wondered if the already problematic light would last. Finally, of course, she appeared, descending the stairway in great good humor, unperturbed by the chaos she causes, and all, as always, was instantly forgiven in the wake of her never-diminishing splendor. Even if you know Elizabeth Taylor, It is not uncustomary to gasp a little when you see her. She is a sight that never ceases to fascinate. Now in the 43rd year of her stardom, she is voluptuous and ravishing again. The recent image of obesity and alcoholism and Percodan addiction is behind her. Except for her recurring back problems, she radiates good health and a maturing beauty. Unhurried, she examined herself in the hall mirror the left side of her face, the right side of her face, moistened her lips, evened her lipstick with the little finger of her left hand, and adjusted a strand of her frosted black hair. There are lots of paparazzi in front of the house, I said to alert her. So what else is new, she answered. You look great. Thank you, love. Outside, the sky was suddenly bright for the first time that day. You see, the sun is better now, she said to Helmut Newton as if she had done him a favor by being late. You're torturing me, he replied. No, I'm toying with you, she said. And y'all, that's how Elizabeth Taylor plays. She's such a legend. I'm going to carry on because Dominic really does write this so respectfully. Chief among her accomplishments over the last several years was her seven-week stay at the Betty Ford Center near Palm Springs. Her admiration for Betty Ford is boundless. My God, what she's done for women alcoholics is just phenomenal. She's lifted the stigma. She went to the center through family intervention. She was at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica when her brother and his wife, her sons, and one of her daughters arrived to tell her that she could go to the Betty Ford Center by choice or she would eventually end up killing herself. She admits to being riddled with guilt and shame, but the decision to go was her own. Like most people who have conquered addiction, She talked openly and freely about it, without embarrassment, aware that the example she had set was a help to other people. 
I had been taking sleeping pills every night for 35 years. I was hooked on Percodan. I had reached a point where I would take one or two Percodan mixed with booze before I could go out in the evening and face people. I think you know how horribly shy I really am. I thought it would help me because that combination would make me kind of talkative. I felt I was being charming. I was probably boring as hell, but it gave me false courage. During the course of an evening, like every four hours, I'd take another two Percodan. And of course, I had a hollow leg. I could drink anybody under the table and never get drunk. My capacity to consume was terrifying. I didn't realize that I was an alcoholic until I'd been at the center for a couple of weeks. Just because I wouldn't get drunk doesn't mean it wasn't poison for me. How soon after you went to Betty Ford did the press pick up that you were there? I asked. I'd been there over a week, but I have an uncanny sense about the press. I had a feeling in my gut that it was going to leak out. So I talked to Betty Ford about it, and she agreed that I should announce it and get it in print, because otherwise the press would just make up a story about me being in a straight jacket or carried down or God knows what. I was right. They were on to it, but I beat them by a few hours. This continues, and this is where it is just such a revealing portrait. This is how long they've known each other and the kind of information Dominic can get. He'll go on and ask her, what was your first encounter with the people they're like? You must have caused a sensation. And Elizabeth replies, they never had a celebrity before. They told me later, the counselors, they didn't know what to do with me. Whether they should treat me like an ordinary patient or whether they should give me some sort of special isolated treatment. They decided to lump me in with everyone else, which of course was the only way to do it. And that's the way they treat celebrities now. It doesn't matter who you are. We get all kinds down there. Street junkies, preachers, priests, doctors, psychiatrists, and society ladies. You name it. Dominic is going to press his luck just a little more. Was it hard for you to talk in front of those people? And Elizabeth will reply, in the beginning, yes, I felt like I was giving interviews. I talked about my childhood and my past in a very couched way, giving the version I would give to the press and keeping the true version to myself. And then I broke all those barriers down and told the truth. Like an onion, I was peeled down to the absolute core. Did you have a roommate? I asked. Yes, she replied, and then thought about it for a moment and added with a smile, it was the first time I'd ever shared a room with a woman. Like, what a conversation. Dominic's writing about it all. He will go on to note that her reverence for Richard Burton, who died last year, is absolute and private, and she was emphatic in stating that she did not wish to share her thoughts and feelings about him. Her stare is unflinching when she makes such a point. In an interview, even a friendly one, she is on her guard. I've been burned so many times, she warned me. Even in this interview, y'all, she's a pro. Dunn will write, If there were long moments of silence, she did nothing to fill them in. At other times, on certain subjects, she said, This is off the record, or motioned for the tape recorder to be turned off, with the expertise of someone who has been through the procedure a thousand times before. Several times, she pulled out a handbag from behind some pillows and brushed on pink lipstick as a way of changing the subject. Another subject that comes up a few times within this particular piece is Elizabeth's great friend, Rock Hudson. This article is not published until December of 1985. Rock Hudson will have passed away by the time of this article's release. Dunn will write about her work 
with the American Foundation for AIDS Research at this time. And you'll have to know, Elizabeth Taylor is one of the first people really to speak out about AIDS and naming it, raising money for it. She does an immense amount of work, not only for the recognition of the disease, but raising funds for its cure. Dominic will write that Elizabeth Taylor is the national chairman of AFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. On October 2nd, Rock Hudson, her great friend and co-star in Giant, died of AIDS. Two weeks earlier, on September 19th, Elizabeth, dressed in black lace and emeralds, entered the main ballroom of the Bonaventure Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, and 3,000 of her peers rose and cheered her with a wild ovation. By lending her name and considerable support to APLA, the AIDS Project Los Angeles, for the benefit entitled Commitment to Life, she had helped raise over a million dollars in a single evening, and the huge turnout of stars that night attracted international publicity for the plight of AIDS victims. Amid the pandemonium, she remained socially graceful, finding the right thing to say to each person she greeted, from Whoopi Goldberg to Cindy Lauper to Burt Reynolds to Shirley MacLaine to Gregory Peck, talking intimately and laughing as if a hundred flashbulbs were not exploding in her face and security men were not holding back the crush of people who wanted to get nearer to her. I don't want to talk to her. I just want to look at her, one beautifully dressed woman pleaded with a guard. I'm stunned said a young female studio executive sitting next to me at Elizabeth's table. I've never seen anything like this. I've been with Barbara and Jane in public, but it's nothing like this. And closing out this article, I just, just what a relationship these two have. And Dominic will close this piece writing, after four decades of making headlines with her marriages, her divorces, her tragedies, her near fatal illnesses, she has passed from superstardom into legend. That comes with aging, she told me modestly. The public has seen her at the top, in the middle, and supposedly washed up. But Elizabeth Taylor will never be washed up. She is old man river. She just keeps rolling along. And Elizabeth Taylor did, friends, until her death in 2011. It's hard to believe that it's been 10 years. Elizabeth passed away March 23rd, 2011, at the age of 79, Fun little added bit here, the ever-legendary star to the end. Elizabeth, in planning for her funeral services, has requested that the service start 15 minutes late because she even wanted to be late for her own funeral. And that is some saying goodbye to Hollywood. We will be returning to Hollywood next week for the trial of John Sweeney, with Dominic coming back in July 1983 after his ousting the decade before. Thank you so much for joining me today on Done and Done. And thank you for telling your friends about Done and Done and your fantastic reviews and all of your kind feedback and your gracious words and appreciation. I appreciate y'all so, so much. Y'all are the very best. We'll be back again next Monday. And until then, stay curious. Keep on investigating, friends. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com 
You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.